I would say this afternoon as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. Now, I mean, if you're new to all of this, this is a pretty weird thing. I mean, we're looking at a group of people that, by the way, strangely enough, cease to exist more than twice. And once more than a millennia. I don't know if you ever thought about that. That now exist, still hated by most of the world. There are people still claiming with their countries, developing nuclear weapons, saying they will wipe these people off the face of the planet. And here we are at the birth of them. I mean, so we can say, well, there's a relative aspect to this. It's pertinent. It's relative because, sure, there's this culture, there's this country, and we want to know more about it. If you're the kind that's sort of an erudite, a learned historian, you like to be Mr. Smart Depends, well, you can go there with it. And that's no truth, you know, no doubt there's some truth to be gathered from it. But for the average person who's just seeking to get food on the table and figuring out what's going to happen next and just praying that their line doesn't shut down before they try to get home, that's probably not the most important thing to them. So where does it go beyond that? And put it in its most basic sense. God even says in this chapter, you are to commemorate the fact that you have been taken out of the land of bondage. That's where this starts. For four centuries. Four centuries. By the way, from where I come from, I know this is probably going to surprise you, I'm not, well, I'm not born British. Yeah, it's a shocker, isn't it? And the country I come from didn't exist 400 years ago, for what that's worth. Back then, if I remember correctly, those Mayans were putting together calendars, which were wrong. Thank you. Anyways... Yeah, happy new end of the world days. Um, so hear me out. For four centuries, all you knew was slaves, which means, by the way, unless somebody's older than 400 years old, which no one was, that means every person there was born into bondage, has only known bondage, has only ever known bondage. Their fathers, their grandfathers only knew bondage. That's all they knew. So if you ask grandpa, great-grandpa Shimei, what was it like to be free, all they could tell you about was what it meant to be a slave. Now Jesus had said, whoever sins is a slave to sin. But don't miss that. And then the and idea of it is, if we, you let me tell you the difference between what the world's teaching you and what the Bible teaches. The world teaches that you were born good, and then the world tweaked you. The problem is, how did the world get so messed up to tweak you in the first place? Oh yeah, other people. Put that all the way back to the beginning. If man was basically good, how did the world ever get bad? The Bible teaches we are born sinners. You know, there are certain words, two words I've learned, you don't have to teach a child. If you took a child, and from the moment they were born, you put them in a room, and you fed them, and you gave them no media, no interaction, except for just smiles, touches, and no, physical, or no verbal communication. I guarantee you they will still know the words no and mine. I don't even know where that comes from. But it's like, you know what? And if they speak any language, if they don't speak any language, it's like they could learn it in any language they want. Mine is mine. We are born with that. So understand... Welcome to where they were. You were born into bondage. Now, maybe you don't like that, but can I just be a friend enough to tell you the truth? Here's the good news. Is that God is in the business of delivering. He's in the business of setting free. And not just pastors, not just Americans or people that came from a quote-unquote Christian country. We're talking about human beings. We don't read that God so loved the church. We read that God so loved the world. And that's you. It doesn't matter where you come from. God so loved your name here. God so loved the rapist. God so loved the murderer. God so loved, and you go, well, how could God do that? Well, because you understand, God's love was never one that relied upon anything in you to be so darn lovable. God loves you because he's love. And the good news is because there's nothing in you that elicited God's love other than that he made you to be with him, you can't blow it either. So here's the problem. 
Somewhere down the line, God sends a deliverer, the Lamb of God to be slaughtered, the firstborn son to die. That in the death of the firstborn son, in the death of the Lamb of God, you will ultimately find that there will be freedom. Here's the problem. Now what? So by a show of hands, how many of you really here genuinely believe from Scripture that you have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? In other words, you're a Christian. Not because you went to church, but because Jesus has saved you. Raise your hand if you say, I know, I know that I know that I know that I've accepted the gift of Jesus. Okay. Now the question is, what now? Okay, you can put your hands down. Although, I love the fact that... Now, I pray that if I said that same thing in the middle of Camden, you guys would raise your hands just as high. Now, follow me on this. What we have from this point on is firsts. And that's kind of a cool thought. You know, when you get married, everything becomes a first again. Your first Christmas, your first Easter, your first meal. You might forget about that. Your second meal, your first dessert, your first restaurant, your first vacation, your first holiday, whatever. And, and then you have children, and guess what? You get little bulbs you hang on your trees that say, baby's first Christmas. And then you have another child, second baby's first Christmas. It's always firsts. And no matter what it is, the moment you engage in this new relationship, all of a sudden everything becomes a first. Well, my God's a God of firsts. So understand, you are leaving, and God says in this chapter, you are leaving the land of bondage for a place you don't know. You've never been there before. You personally, it's, and it's like when we talk about being representatives of heaven, is that a kind of a crazy thought? I'm an ambassador of a place I've never personally been to, but I'm a citizen. That's strange. And I want to encourage you to come with me to where? This place. Have you seen it? No, but I know it. Really? Yeah. But I haven't seen Jesus either, but I know him. Now, follow me on this. What I have in this chapter is what happens now, what, the beginning of our firsts, as God steps us out of the land of bondage. And by the way, can I just say, it's chapters like this that we need so desperately because in a world, especially in the Western world, where everything's sort of a tick-the-box, task-oriented world we live in, it's kind of like if you were anything like me, the moment I said yes to Jesus, it was done. And then I was stuck because I had no idea what to do next. And to be honest, the people around me had no idea what to do with me either. But God knows. And so he's led them now out of... Now, now understand, please understand, they're not yet at the place God wants them. God has a place for them. But they've left the place they came from, and they're in this strange place in between. Somewhere from the land of bondage, where you couldn't say yes or no, sir. When sin came, you just did it. When the enemy came and whispered in your ear, you just listened. When the flesh cried out, you just surrendered. And God took you out of that. And you go, well, but, but I'm not exactly where I know God wants me. Good news is, everybody gets that. Somewhere in all of this, there is going to be, hear me on this, a 40-year death march, which sounds awful from the beginning, but it really isn't. God made clear in the last chapter, in chapter 12, verse 37, that 600,000 Jewish men left Egypt, plus their wives, plus their children. And then in the next verse, a mixed multitude went with them also. Which means there were 600,000 Jewish men and their wives and their children and people who weren't Jewish who came with. And ultimately, everybody but two men under the age of, that we'll see here in a bit, under a specific age, are going to die. And I look at them and I think, wow, that's crazy. And of course, the easy place to go was, well, that's the church. There's the mixed multitude. There are some that really want to grow closer to Jesus. There are others that really wish they could go back to the world. There's some that don't even know what they're doing. They just showed up and they were looking for directions to McDonald's and they wound up here. Whatever. And in all of that, the moment that, when this blew up on me, 
was several years ago when I was seeking this on my own and the Lord just went, Tony, that's not just the church. That's you. Because in me, there's a part that just wants to be close to Jesus at any cost. There's another part that looks back and thinks glory days. Now, I'll agree with you. That second part is the stupidest part that I am. But it still exists. And the moment I realize that inside me is this mixed multitude, and dare I say, more than likely, if you've said yes to Jesus, inside you is as well, the more I realize how beautiful and merciful it is, the death march. Because what God is doing is the old man, the old generation is going to die in the wilderness so that when they get into the place that God has for them, that guy's dead. And I think, thank you, Lord. Well, where does it start? Look at the last verse of the last chapter, and then we get into our text. And I'll give you four basic points, as the Lord has shown me. In verse 51, notice it says, It came to pass, this is the last chapter, chapter 12, that it came to pass in that very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. Not an odd thought. Somewhere in all of this, God took a group of people that were slaves, that were in bondage, and he turned them into armies. Strange, because by the end of this chapter, God is going to have them avoid a battle because they don't know. Hear me, hear me. They don't know they're an army yet. And the last thing you want is for an army not to realize they're an army, for soldiers to not know they're soldiers. Do you remember that in primary school, in elementary school? There was some big kid, and he was a bit oafy, but he was gigantic. I don't know what happened, whether he flunked 16 years, or whether he was just something happened glandular, but somewhere in in a little thing that looked like a chihuahua picked on the Great Dane. And the kid took it. He just got beat on because he had no idea how big he was. You ever see that? Now, we taught secondary school, and I heard a story about one of our kids, a French kid, really sweet kid named Alan Patrick. I mean, and this guy was just, he was built like one of those guys that if a car ran into him, pity the car, you know? And he was, he was the most gentle and kind guy you ever saw. Now, his brother was the opposite, but he was just this super sweet kind of pet the puppy, hold the butterfly kind of guy. Now, he's super sweet, but he was, he was the kind of guy you wouldn't joke about it with him. But in that, he got in one fight in his whole life, and some kid just came up to him and started pushing him. And poor Alan had never been in a fight, and he looked and he goes, please don't do that, please don't do that. And the kid kept pushing him. Alan didn't know what to do, so without even bending over, he just grabbed him by the midsection, picked him up, shook him, and then threw him down. He didn't even move. He was just so big, and the kid was going, ah, and he ran off. End of fight. Now, the reason I say that is, is that there are times where even the person who has it doesn't even realize it. Now, in this text, God is going to give us four commands. And dare I say that the four commands I would want to give you today, believers, and if you haven't accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I just beg you to consider what God has to offer here. Notice what it says in chapter 13, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. Then, after he had pulled them out of Egypt. Now, Pharaoh was still alive. His army, which Josephus will tell us, whether it's right or not, that there are 250,000 guys armed and ready for battle. That includes, by the way, 50,000 horsemen and 100, I'm sorry, 200,000 foot soldiers. That's a lot of guys armed for battle against slaves who, by the way, would you ever teach a slave to use a weapon? Because if you do, they're going to use it on you. Well, you get the idea. And now now that he's pulled them out of that land, he says, now that that's the case, the Lord says, and notice the first command, verse 2, consecrate. If you're a note taker, I challenge you to write that down. By the way, for what it's worth, in this particular version, that's the New King James, this is the first time that word appears in Scripture. The most base word for this, by the way, is the word karash, And the word kadash has only been used once in Scripture as a whole, even in its base sense. And that was back in the book of Genesis, when God says, by the way, in Genesis 2-3, that God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. And it's the only time that even the base word's been used up to now. The word here that we see as consecrate the first time in Scripture. And this is the first thing that God says. Now, that, now again, I, you're not exactly where I want you yet. And there's going to be some things that are going to take place in between here and there. And it's kind of like this. You're 18 and you're like, why am I not married yet? And God says, because if you married the right guy, you'd turn him into the wrong guy because you're not ready yet. 
And in the same way, God says, okay, I have a place for you, but I've got some work to do on you before we even get you near that spot yet. And in that now, he goes, look, at here's the first thing in it. I want you to start consecrating. Now understand, before we even get into the, to the logistics of what God has here, let me just say in your sense that the moment you've accepted Jesus Christ, my challenge to you is to start taking a look at everything, everything that somehow is attached to you. From the things that you think are knowledge, to the stuff you possess, to the friends you keep, to the way that you look at the world, to your dreams and aspirations and your value systems. Everything gets laid out and I go, can I consecrate this or not? Consecrate in its simplest sense means to set apart for a specific purpose or set apart unto a specific thing. The words sanctify and consecrate are almost synonymous. Interesting, because it's the same one that will be used, by the way, when God tells us that husbands are supposed to do that with their wives. And that makes perfect sense to me. I believe that there are 3.8 billion women on the planet. But of the 3.8 billion women on the planet, only three of them have my last name, my surname, at least that are directly related to me. Of those three, only one of them is old enough to vote. Of those three, only one of them has known me for 25 years. 25 stinking years. And only one of them said, I do. Only one of them had a choice (laughs) to be in my household. The other two really, in essence, kind of got there without that choice. Of all the women in the world, only one of them is consecrated as my wife. And she is consecrated. She is set apart. Now understand, not for purpose but for presence. She is set apart unto me. Interesting, that's what God would say in regards to consecrating as well. Things are consecrated by his presence, by his word. That's what he tells us. And so I start looking. And part of it is, I look at this big book and I think, wow, that's a really, God wants me to read all of this? And I mean, Really? You'd think he was a Russian writer. This is so much stuff. What's ironic is people would be like, well, does God say anything about this? Does God say, and you want want people to be able to say, yes, yes, God has something to say. But with all of the things people say that to you, how big should the book be? Well, I want God to be able to talk about dating. I want God to be able to talk about how to raise children. I want God to talk about how to raise finances. And churches will spend all the time on one, you know, those subjects or whatever. I want God to talk about demons and spirits and spiritual warfare and, and whether I should put mustard on my hot dog. And, you know, it's like, and then over the end of it all, it's like, well, okay, except for maybe the last one, you know, the book of Second Delicatessens. You know, they're, they're in here. And then the reason is, is because God really wants to make very clear where he stands on things. And people would say, I wish I could read God's mind. And I'd say, yes, you can. It's right there. You want to read God's mind? Booyah! Now, this is the problem. The majority of the problems we have earlier in our walk, to be honest, is because we really didn't lay it out and see whether we could consecrate it. Gee, uh, I beat up people to get money back for a loan shark. I wonder if I could consecrate that to God. Probably not. I'm a thief. A drug dealer. Yeah, that isn't going to reconcile to God. I like to cheat on my wife. That's not going to reconcile to God. I love to gossip about people. That's not going to reconcile to God. And I realized the moment that he gets you out of bondage, now listen, listen, before, and I'm doing this dangerously because I know that sooner or later I'll send off a speaker, but listen, the moment that you said yes to Jesus and he pulled you out of that land of bondage, is the first time, honestly, you could say no. I mean, that's the most amazing thing. In other words, God's like, try me on this. Say, say no and see what happens. You actually can. Though he keeps saying, come on, baby, you can actually say no. You say, we're done with that. And, and you, you know, when you say, well, you know what, I've always done this. I've always had this secret little thing in the dark corner. And God says, look it, look it. If you can't consecrate it, let me kill it. It died at the cross. Now here God says, what I want you to consecrate is my firstborn. Now understand something, because this is something we just don't understand today, and it's really, really, really sad. God really, really, really has it in for older people teaching younger people how to do stuff. Isn't that weird? 
It's not as weird when you get older. It's just weird when you're younger because the last thing you want to do is listen to anyone. So older people now, because if you can change it from being an ethic-driven or a moral-driven society to an economic-driven society, old people are a bad thing. They just suck from the system. So they're, you know, they're, superf- sur- <laughs> they're super- superfluous. It's an easier word in my head than my mouth. Um, and that's really sad to become you know, obsolete. And that's sad. But scripturally, the older men are to teach the younger men. Which, by the way, neither side seems willing to do that. Have you noticed that? It's like old men are like, oh, those are kids. I don't want to talk to them. They wouldn't think I was cool anyways. The fact that you're not cool means you're older, and that actually gives you some street cred for being older. The young kids are like, well, they wouldn't want to talk to me anyways, and all they want to do is share stories. And it's like part of that is, is that when we come, give our life to Christ, we start going, wow, you probably, maybe you know something I don't. But it's not just older men teaching younger men and older women teaching younger women, which, by the way, Titus 2 makes very clear. But it's the oldest child. And I don't know how many of you, let me just ask, by a show of hands, how many of you are the firstborn of your siblings? Raise your hand. Look around the room for a second. Raise your hands high. Take a look. Okay, now let me just say something. Go ahead, you can put your hands down. That's a lot of you. There comes a point, and it doesn't take very long, before the parents just lose ability to be able to communicate to their children. I mean, some of you are aware of that. We fight with Disney. We fight with YouTube. We battle with things that just, you know, it's just an awful battle. And the children are going to look at the coolest person that they spend the most time with, which, by the way, will be the oldest sibling. You know what? In the house, that's easy. We forget about that. We'd rather not realize there is a responsibility with that firstborn to carry on the family honor, to carry on the family traditions, to carry on the family occupation. Those things were fundamental in those days, guys. Those were fundamental. But even when you're older, the younger kids still call the older brother up and say, hey, having problems in my marriage, can you talk to me? And here's the thing. Whether you know it or not, you will more than likely be the most influential person in the lives of your younger siblings for at least some season and quite an influential person for the rest. Now, whether that will be, and maybe you've heard it said, either you're going to be a warning or an example. Maybe you're just going to live a rotten life and people will say, from this point on, whatever you do, don't do what my big brother does. I never had that benefit of an older sibling, to be honest, until I was in my 20s. My oldest brother, who, by the way, is my pastor now, is more the firstborn in my family now since I was reconciled to him. I didn't know him until I was in my 20s. And, and, and that's amazing because by that point, and this maybe is just the kindness of God, by that point he was saved and pastoring, and what a great time to re-meet him. Before that, he was a hippie. So it probably was a good thing I didn't know him in those days. <laughs> I was bad enough the way I was. But now I have this wonderful firstborn relationship. I'm the baby. I'm the youngest. I'm so, so thankful for the firstborn in my family now. But what about you? And God says, listen, that firstborn needs to know the importance. And here's my question to you. In our household, we talk about the idea of graduating to friend. The idea is simple. Every person you meet is a ministry to you. But if they, if they show the kind of example where you're willing to let them influence you because you're sure that their influence will bring you closer to Jesus, they graduate to friend. Because a friend is someone you allow the privilege of influence in your life. Does that make sense? Here's my question to you big siblings, older siblings. If your younger siblings lived by that standard, if your younger siblings lived by that standard, would they choose you as a friend? Would you graduate to friend? Would they look at you and say, that person deserves to have the influence in my life? Or would they say, that person's just a warning? Because you know what? You can make that challenge today, that choice today, to not live the life where your younger siblings are going, note to self, just do the opposite of that person, and it will be better. And God takes that really seriously. In other words, God knows the dynamic of a family, and he knows how powerful that is. Do you see that? He knows the influence of an older sibling. But here he says, look it, we're going to take it all the way down to a donkey. Now, please hear me on this. 
A donkey is a very, very important thing to, to the Middle East. The donkeys were called Middle Eastern contractors. To this day, they still use donkeys for several things. The width of a road has to be wide enough for a donkey. Every road in Israel has to be wide enough for a donkey with a load on to get through. Donkeys, by the way, are the only animals they let down the Grand Canyon. Are you aware of that? See, horses are dumb enough to jump off a cliff. Donkeys don't put up with it. I mean, donkey. Now, I ain't doing it. I'm making waffles, but I ain't getting off the... And it's like, understand, the donkeys... And so what happens is donkeys will take the safest route down a hill. And they watch that. Because as they watch the donkey take the route, they say, that's the route to build your street. And they're wise to do that. So understand, your donkey, and it's sort of like saying, sacrifice everything. Don't sacrifice your first car. You can redeem it. And understand, there's this difference. Either that thing is sacrificed to God, or it is redeemed. But according to Scripture, it is redeemed by a lamb. And I love that. So the first thing, by the way, again, what's the first of them? Consecrate. Now let me hear you say that. What's number one? Consecrate. Thank you, the six of you who said that. All right, now look at the second one, verse 3. It says, And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength the hand of the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. On the day that you're going out in the month of Abib, which by the way means the month of ears, um, you shall be that when the Lord brings you out into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, Jebusites, which he swore to, to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. The first one is consecrate. The second one is commemorate. According to this text, the word that is used here for remember is the word zakar. Try that word, zakar. Now, come on, this is Hebrew. You can't go zakar. Zakar. Come on, there's got to be a little spit in your mouth. Zakar. Beautiful. Now, there's some of you that are German. You should have all kinds of spit in your mouth. Zakar. Now, follow me in this. The word means to mark. And the idea of it is, and I'm not telling you to get a tattoo, but I'm telling you the idea of this is very similar. The idea when somebody gets something that's such a permanent mark on them, that any time they look at that, it reminds them of this thing. Now, what does it remind them of? Never, never, never forget you left the house of bondage. Never forget that. And that means two things. Number one is, where you left was bondage. Number two, you're gone. May I say it this way, as I heard a singer say once, remember your chains, but remember your chains are gone. Never forget that that was bondage. Because you're going to look back, and the enemy's going to paint it differently. And it's going to be the glory days, the good old days, because you were younger, and you were cuter, and you were hotter, and you were whatever, and in that more people looked at you and said, wow. But in the end of it all, it was bondage. But it was exciting because we ran from police. We weren't sure if we had a disease. We, ran, we did all kinds of We could have got beat up and killed. That's exciting. I miss the garlic. And God says, never forget, that was bondage. Don't ever look back at that and go, you know, just a couple more images on the screen. That's not that big of a deal. Just a couple more looks from that girl or that guy. A couple more minutes on the internet with that person. That's okay. A couple drinks. What's the big deal? It was bondage. Come on. Just try it. And we have history here of people that are like, you know what? And, and you know, the enemy's smart. He's stupid, but he's smart. And one of the ways he plays this is he can convince you that that sin has some form of benefit in your life. You've got a toothache. Do a little drugs. That'll help you. You know what? It's stressful. A little bit of internet porn. Hey, it'll relax you. And you get these things, that, and the enemy plays this whole thing off somehow as if there's some great personal benefit to sin. It is still the land of bondage. When you left it, it didn't stop being the land of bondage. You just stopped being a member there. Isn't that good news? So understand, God wants us. You know what's amazing? You can commemorate. If I were to say, tell me three events that radically impacted you and you would say you were really gutted, changed by. You might be able to go, here they are. 
But if you say, tell me three times where you saw God radically impact your life, you'd be like, hmm. And you'd be fumbling for the first one and you've been saved for 20 years. You should be able to pull that one out. Isn't it amazing? And we want to probably, and again, we're supposed to be soldiers and we can't even remember that we're out of the land of bondage. And if the enemy can't convince you that you're out of the land, the enemy can convince you you're not in the land of bondage. Wait a minute, let me say it again. If the enemy can convince you you're still in the land of bondage, how in the world are you going to praise God in his victory for the freedom that he gives you? And then you're going to go out there and feel like a hypocrite for saying that Jesus could set them free because you don't even feel free. And it's like, let me just remind you, I took your filth to the grave. Let me remind you, I took your, your porn to the grave. I took your drug abuse to the grave. I took your gossip to the grave. I took your selfishness to the grave. I took your gossip to the grave. I took everything about where the whole world had to be about you to the grave, and it died there with me. It died there. Don't tell me that I'm going to resurrect that. I died on a cross so that could permanently die. I'm not into resurrecting that. I'm into resurrecting you. And if that's still in you, then I didn't resurrect you. The cancer of your soul has been completely removed from you. Don't forget to commemorate that. How many of you know your rebirth day? The day when you were reborn. The day when you were born again. Raise your hand. Okay, look at, look at how many of you there are. That's about four or five hands. Now, how many of you are sure that you are saved? Raise your hand. Okay, now that's radically a lot more of you. Now, how about this? How many of you could tell me the month you got saved in? That's some more of you. Isn't that weird? I was like, I think it was warm. I think it was... I mean, the reason I say that is, it's like we've like kind of left that behind... But, beloved, listen, it is time that, if, if you know what, ask the Lord to reveal that to you again. And I think it's time we started celebrating rebirth days. To be honest, I think that that day should be celebrated more than the first one. Yeah, congratulations, a jerk was born into the world. That's your first birthday. Congratulations, a saved person was brought into the world. That's your rebirth day. I think that's the one, that's the one your family should celebrate more, don't you think? Congratulations, we killed a jerk. We killed a jerk. Woo! Here's a cake. That's the way I see it. No, I'd rather celebrate when you are nasty. No, well, make up your own mind. Month of years, Abib. Why is it important? Because it's the time when the barley starts, the corn starts to flourish, the beginning of the harvest, the month of Abib. It's March, April. I just consider it this. It's also the time where our ears should be open, where our ears got open to the Lord's call in our life. Seven and, verses 6 and 7. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Now, isn't this awesome? God declared one fast, one specific fast, and three required one week feasts. Oh, what a wonderful God we serve. And better yet, he made them barbecues. Thank you, Lord. He didn't say, well, we're going to make it something gooey and runny. He said, let's, let's, grill that. let's kill some meat and kill it and grill it. And I think, thank you, God. Listen to this. That whole idea of unleavened bread, I will remind you, and he talks about, I don't want any leaven in your house. Remember, leaven is yeast, and yeast dies. It's death that decays in something to make it bigger. And God says, look, don't you ever forget that when this comes down to what death was left behind. And in verses 6 and 7, it says, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord, unleavened bread shall not be eaten for those seven days. I'm sorry, unleavened bread shall be eaten for those seven days. No leavened bread among you, nor shall there be leaven even among your quarters. What was the first of those four? Consecrate. Consecrate. Okay, come on, give it to me. What's the first of them? Consecrate. Okay, now give it to me a little bit more like you're alive. What is it? Consecrate. Beautiful. What's the second one? Consecrate. The third one is celebrate. Look at what he says here. This is now that you've consecrated and you actually said, I'm setting this aside over to the Lord. The rest of it you can kill. Then I'm going to commemorate. Don't, and I never want to forget that Jesus saved me. Then I want to celebrate. If I really, 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 really know that I've been taken out of the land of bondage, if I've been taken out of the land of slavery, then how can I not celebrate? If I still think I'm in the land of bondage, I'll do like many. We stand and lift up our hands. For the joy of the Lord is our strength. 
We bow down and worship you now. How great, oh shut up, the great mighty is he. Wow, you're terrible. Whenever we sing, oh, you know, how great is our God. Sing with him, how great is our God. I mean, could you imagine if the world saw that? It's no wonder why that kind of thing winds up on YouTube and people poke fun of it. I mean, and I'm not asking you to be a spaz, unless you already are one. <laughs> but I was full on for sin. Now, some of you, maybe you were like mild for sin. Oh, not me. I mean, like, you know when they talk about where you step on the pedal, the gas pedal, and it just gets stuck to the floor? I didn't even have a gas pedal. It was just on all the time. You started up the car, and it was already moving. And I tell you what, and I remember getting saved and saying, God, make me normal. And I could actually hear God chuckle. God, make me normal. (laughs) Yeah, that's going to happen. And God said, you were full on for the world. What's to make you think I'm going to make you normal now that you're with me? And you know what? Praise God. But if I think, wow, you know, I look at it and think I was so hot for sin and now I'm like lukewarm for God. What is wrong with me? I had so much passion for stupidity and destruction. And now I know the creator of my soul that's perfect and awesome and amazing. And I'm going to think, yeah, how great is our God. Whoop-de-doo, how great. Really? We should be shattering windows and rattling rafters. You know, you get a group of people put together in a mosque and they just yell and people freak out about it. Imagine what happens when we who serve the living God stand up and praise. The ground should shake. The world around us should go, oh, what just happened? Well, the sleeping giant that walks with the one who is greater than he who is in the world has woken up and said, it's time to get our praise on. And I'm not talking about let's just get emotional and do laps around the building. Although, after as much as we eat, that might be good still. But I'm saying, let's get up and let's, get, let's, let's celebrate our God. I mean, man, it, it should be so much more than, yeah, I just made it to another day. Oh, can't wait for heaven. Wow. This is, and that's abundant life. I hate to see what it was like when you only had a little of it. Wow, I just... Just pray for me. It's been a, just, I just, I'm gutted. I just, man, the, the Northern Line closed this week and I'm just gutted. Man, I don't know. You must have like a crab guts where they keep going back. But in the end of it all, it's like, man, I love Jesus. And in the end of it all, if I have to walk a little bit more, God probably knows I need the exercise. But in it, it's like, Lord, I love you. And even if this world were to slay me and I were to die on my way from one thing to another, thank you that I know where I'm going. And if the worst that I really have are circumstances that the rest of the world wants to jump in front of a train for, I should still be like, yes! This morning, Ruthie and I are at our breakfast date that we have every Sunday, and I love it. And this particular waitress comes over and she goes, you're just like the happiest guy I've ever known. And my first thought is, I don't know how many guys you know, but, you know. And I'm like, then my thought is, God, thank you that this isn't one of those moments where Ruthie says, you should see him when he wakes up or something like that. <laughs> but you know what? We really should be people that, that glow, that we sell. I mean, celebrate's not just let's get together because I've got six songs to flash on a screen so you can all sing the same things. I mean, your life should be celebration, shouldn't it? Because you, Jesus doesn't stay in this building when you leave. Thank you, God, for that. He's like, you kids go out and tell me when the next time you have a problem. He's like, look, we're going out together. And beloved, if you're going to become the soldiers God called you to be, 
And you've got to consecrate first and say, you know what, if that doesn't belong to Jesus, then you can just take it and bury it. If this does belong to you, if that's my attitude on something, that's my view on something, and I'm scared of this, and I don't want to do this, and I can't commit to this, and I won't, whatever. And God says, look, I'm just going to kill all of that. And you're like, don't do that, then I won't know where I'm going. God says, well, where are you in Exodus with that pastor of yours? Because in that, that's where we're going. We don't know where in the world we're going. All we know is God's got a place so much better than where we were. And to be honest, the moment we stepped out of Egypt, it was better than where we were, but it's not where we we're going to end up. That's infinitely better. We can't even imagine that yet. It's just happy not to be in bondage. So what was the first one? What was the first one? What was the second one? What was the third one? Beautiful. Hey, guess what? You guys are awake. I love this. Look at the fourth one. Now, verse 8. And you shall tell your son on that day, saying, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came out from Egypt. In other words, here you are, you're, you're, you're sacrificing these things and your kid's going to do as most kids would. Dad, why are you doing that? And you know what the fourth one is? Communicate. Because you know what, in the end of it all, let me just say this, somewhere down the line, someone grabbed a hold of that St. Francis of Assisi thing, and I don't even know if he ever said that. If I get to heaven, well, I know I will one of these days, but when I stand before I ever, when I get there, see St. Francis of Assisi, one of the first things I want to ask is, hey man, did you really say, look, it preach the gospel if it's necessary, use words. Did you really say that? Because people put it all over their walls. Can I just say this? It's necessary. Use words. Scripture says, whatever you do, in word and deed, do it in the name of Jesus Christ, giving glory God the Father through it. Now, if you do it in the name of Jesus Christ, His name's got to be in there. Is that, the, you know what? It's like, and this is what happens. I'm going to go share Jesus with someone. I'm going to share, and they're like, well, she seems like a nice Scottish girl. Hey, let me tell you what, Jesus saves people, and you know, we're all wicked. And this precious Scottish girl says, you know what, actually, and I'm not even going to try to imitate your accent, which is probably smart. And she'll say, you know what, but that person's a nice person. And I'll look at them and I'll be like, well, how do you know they're a nice person? Well, she's a nice one. They're not Christian. How do you know they're not Christian? Because they never said they were and I know them for years. And it turns out they are. Do you see how that gets in the way of me sharing Jesus with this poor girl? Because then she's like, well, that person's nice. I'm like, wow. And that person, they said they're a Christian and they're rotten. So this is what I get. That person's nice and they're not a Christian. That person's rotten and they are. I'm like, how do you know that person's not Satan? Well, because they said they were nice. They said they were a Christian. Well, Satan's no dummy. He would say that too. He knows that works. But the moment we start getting silent about it, we think, you know what we're going to do? We're going to be the happy, really do nice things club. And somehow in that, it's going to rub off. Hey, here's something nice. Oh, you're going to get saved. And here's something nice. I, I just gave a, a, a big blanket to a homeless guy. You'll be saved from that. What? You know why we do that? Because we know that, that when, when the moment we preach Jesus, someone's going to flip out. You know, but they're like, oh, I just fed a, you know, I fed a thousand homeless people. You're such a nice guy. And God said, well, there's all the reward you get, man. And God's like, I gave you that opportunity. I gave you those resources. I gave you all that blessing so that you could actually let people know I do stuff like that still. And then people go, well, where is God in all of that? You know, I don't see him being kind to people. I mean, who's doing all of that? And you're like, you know, who's doing that? People who love Jesus that are too wimpy to tell you. But here, let me just tell you, Jesus still saves, He still loves, He still transforms, He still delivers, and we should be celebrating that, and when we celebrate it, we should communicate it. Could you imagine if we were actually like, How great is our... Sing with me, how great is our... And all the world will sing, How great is our club... How cool is our church? Yes, you know I mean? How cool. What? And in the end of it all, it's like, you know what? If Jesus walks in and goes, y'all cool, but you ain't hot. I'd rather be hot. I'd rather the Lord come in and go, ooh, this is the place for me. Let's have some fun. Y'all, y'all cool. Or another term for that is lukewarm. All right, so... Here's the four things. And we haven't even gone through the chapter. And I'm going to read, I'm going to read the, I'm going to, I'm going to read the rest of it because I'm American. Uh, I'm going to read the rest of it and I'm going to give you some really quick things about what the Lord wants to do at the end of this. But follow me on this. First of all, I want you to just to bless me, if you would, for a moment. 
Tell me those four things. What was the first of them? Okay, we're getting somewhere. What's the second one? Commemorate. Commemorate. What's the third one? Beautiful. What's the fourth one? Yes, man, communicate that information. But if they're going to communicate it, why? Because someone's going to say, why are you celebrating like that? They're going to go, because it's a nice day. Oh, come on. What? Literally, and by the way, this is, so, this is where it gets so cool. Listen, the word gabar, by the way, the word for tell here literally means to stand boldly against something. And I like that. It isn't just, in other words, even in the word that God picks here for tell your son, it's a word where there's resistance even in speaking and God knows it. You're going to stand against yourself. That's going to say, oh, don't tell him that. That will offend someone. Get over it. So look at here we go. And when they, the Lord brings you, and by the way, verse 11, notice the word when. There's no maybe. There's no if. If the Lord, maybe you'll, maybe you'll get there. When the Lord, God's like, you're going. I've already got you going. You are going to the place I planned for you. And I already know it. I, I see the end from it. When that happens, I want you redeeming. Notice verse 13, I want you to redeem. In other words, this consecration thing isn't just going to happen now. For the rest of your life, you're going to be consecrating things, man. It's going to be something. This whole consecration deal is a regular, consistent, necessary thing. Consecration is a continual thing. You're going to get another job. And as you get some of you, this isn't prophecy. And all of a sudden, you're going to be like, whoa, what do I consecrate? What doesn't work here? You're going to get into another situation. You move into another house. How do I consecrate this house now? What do I consecrate with this? And you realize it's a continual thing. And with that, by the way, look at And how do you redeem it? Notice verse 13. You redeem it with a lamb. And that's what your kids are going to ask. Notice, by the way, I love this. Verse 15 and 16. It says here, when it says, when, you, when they ask about it, you say, well, look at You know, this is why we do it. Because the firstborn died. Pharaoh was stubborn. And look at the last sentence in verse 15. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord, all the males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of the sons I redeem. And can I just say, look at what our children should be asking us. Listen, men, men, men. What our children should be asking us is, why are you sacrificing like that? That's the question they're asking. Why is there that selflessness? Why are you giving that up? You could cheat on your taxes. You could cheat on your wife. You could cheat on that thing and get ahead. You can futz with the numbers. You can muck with the situation. You can play with the things. I've heard it said you can torture the information long enough. You can get it to confess anything. And yet in all of this, see, they ask, why are you sacrificing? And you say, you know why? To redeem. That's why. And isn't that what Paul said? People who horribly take this out of context when he says, look, to those that are under the law, I was like them. They never put that point out. But they'll say, those who weren't, I wasn't. That I might save some. Paul says it's all about sacrifice for the purpose of saving. So in the end of it all, and this is where we close this up, it says then in verse 17, it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines. I remind you, they left his armies according to God, but he says, look, I'm not bringing into battle right away. Might I say what God provided in the beginning of this was protection. Protection even from the battle. And you know what? When you first got saved, do you remember when it seemed like everything was like honeymoon? Now maybe some of you, you got saved and like you got hit with it real hard from the beginning. But many people, that's not their testimony. You got saved and it seemed like no real battles happened in the beginning. He didn't lead you by the way of the Philistines. And part of that is God knows which of us, to be honest, need to be told we're a soldier from the beginning and which of us need to get that little bit of time where it's like, look, at before you get into battle, I just want you to get some things clear first. And there's that protection aspect. But then I go beyond that then, then take a look here as well at verse 18. So God led them by the way of the wilderness of the sea, and the children of the Israel went up in orderly ranks, and they took with them the bones of Joseph with them, it says, for because he had placed them under a solid oath, which is, by the way, a really, really cool thing. And I realize in that, Joseph, and this goes all the way back to Genesis 50, verse 24, when he says, look, I'm dying. This is Joseph. I'm dying, but God will visit you, bring you out of the land in which he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when he does, take my bones with you. Joseph is going to be mummified because, you know, he was kind of a big wig in Egypt. And I understand the first thing is God promises you his protection, but the second is he promises you his, he gives you these precious promises. And this was one of them. Joseph said, look it, God is going to get you out of here. And when he does, not if, when he does, take me with you. 
And I realized the moment I gave my life to the Lord, he's like, look it, I want to protect you, but also I'm going to give you some promises that the moment you grab a hold of by faith, your whole world is going to change. I'm going to so jazz you or groovy, the world's going to shake their head. Last thing, verses 20, 21, and 22. So they took their journey from Sukkot to Etham. They won't be there for long, at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord then went by them by a pillar of cloud to lead them by the way, and a pillar of fire to lead them by light, you know, as to go by day and night. He did not take away, now look at this, he did not take away his pillar of cloud by day or his pillar of fire by night from before the people. Now please don't miss this. God not only promised them his protection and his promises, but he clearly gave them his presence. And you know what? It's like you can't deny that God is there when in this cloudless desert sky there's this one giant log of cloud. And according to, I mean, and there's some of these guys that, you know, that they live their life to try to figure out numbers and those kind of things, and that's cool. But they did it in a way they figured out how many, if there were really two million plus people and they were going in an orderly rank, how long that would be. And he said, basically, that could be as long as 1,100 kilometers. In other words, that would be the nation Israel if they were just in a straight line in an orderly rank between here then and Modena, Italy. That's a long... And the reason I say that is, how long does a pillar of cloud have to be by day for people in a long row to see it, to lead them? And by the way, how kind is God? He could have done it in all kinds of things. He could have had a pillar of fire by both. But walking in the desert, if you know anything about walking on a beach in a really hot day, a cloud is a real merciful thing. And you want to walk underneath that shade because it's the only cool place for you to step. And I could see God and it's like you're standing there. And I've, I've done this when we've, because we lived by the beach. And when the clouds move, you move. Because you want to be able to be on sand that ain't burning you. And the reason I say that is, is when God starts moving, you just kind of follow the shade. And here's the cool thing. Is that God, remember, you are not in the land he has for you yet. But you're not in the land you were. I mean, at any moment of this, look, at the moment you say yes to Jesus, you're his. But yet, though you're his, and he's like, look, I want to give you my protection. That's going to be part of it. I want to give you these precious promises. But man, I want to give you my presence. Because in his presence is the fullness of joy. Not just a bit of happiness you can tap into. The fullness of joy. And when God starts moving, look, at here's the thing. You can never doubt that God was there. I mean, you start having one of those sort of fleshy arguments with someone, and you're like, shh, you can't do that. The cloud is going to hear you know, I mean, at night, it's a pillar of fire. Now, think about that. You can't deny it. It isn't like, you know what, well, I'm going to go hide from God. Where are you going to hide from a big, fiery pillar in the sky? And we're not talking about, like, pillar like that. We're talking pillar, right? I mean, something that's going to be able to be long enough that every person, two plus million people, are going to go, there it is. It isn't like, I think it's back there or somewhere in the... No, no, everybody's seeing it. Every person, and you know what's strange? No wonder why the rest of the people are freaked out. Who wants to fight people that have a giant fire line going, walking them? And they're like, we're just following the fire. You know what's amazing about that? You could never doubt where God wanted you. And he said, he never, listen, never, never, never took it away. Now God will be present when they get into the promised land, when that pillar will cease. But they're going to have to grab a hold of him in a different way. But when he takes you out, he goes, look at I want to be that real to you because you're going to need it. Because the battles you have ahead, the things you're going to have to figure out are going to be things you need to know I'm there. And here's the strange thing. All the time that people complain, we left us to kill us, and all the things we're going to see soon, well, they're going to do all of that underneath a pillar. Have you realized that? I mean, at any given moment, imagine if God just took the roof of this church, just the roof of this church, and then filled this room, and God says, now we're going. And the roof just got up and started moving. It would be pretty easy to find. And we just start following that. Now, how weird would that be for every other person on the planet to look and go, wow, there's like a giant roof leading them. And you know, yeah, we just follow the roof. Well, that's what God just did. Now look at as we go to prayer. And we're almost on time. Listen, I hope you've had as much fun with this as I have. But please listen. God wants to give you his protection. But if you want to run off and say, look, it, I don't want anything to do with you, God says, well, okay, I'll show you how awful that is. It's hell without me. 
you know what, God, I really don't want you in my life right now. And God says, well, all those promises, all the way, by the way, they hinge on you following me. We'd like to grab the last half of it. He'll direct my path. Well, funny, it says, trust in the Lord, lean not with, my, you know, with all my heart, lean not upon my own understanding, but in all my ways acknowledge him, then he'll direct my paths. Yeah, right? Oh, yeah, you know what? He's just going to give me the desires of my heart. Funny, because first I'm supposed to delight in him. And when I delight in him, I can't delight in him and be that selfish to say, you know what? The delight of my heart's a Bentley. God's like, I, I want to be your delight. And you realize, we want to claim the promises, but we don't want to want the part that's the preface. And so you want to be like, look, it, God hasn't done anything for me. I'm like, yeah, yes, he he's kept you alive to hear me crazily rant like this in front of you. And you still have to do something with it, but he would really love to give you his precious promises today. For which we fled from this nasty world. We fled. And that was the whole idea. When you eat that unleavened bread, he goes, you know what that reminds you? You fled from the land of captivity. You didn't jaunt her out. You fled because it was that bad. Don't forget that. And with that, I just really want to fill you with my presence. I want you to know me. And in the beginning, you'll be like, I remember when, man, it's like I heard the name Jesus and I got the tingles. Now I don't. Well, there could be two aspects of that. One is God knows you don't need the tingles. Or part of it, maybe you just started diluting your world with other things and you want, you know, Jesus, you could actually not be the center of my life, but can you still be like the salad on the main course of my life, whatever I decide that's going to be? Because like, I don't want to compete with you like that. Look at this, we go to prayer. That's what God wants to offer you. But Pharaoh's still alive. The enemy's still alive. His army's still armed. But they're not going to be for long. As we close this up, bless me one more time, would you? What are those four things? What's number one? Consecrate that life of yours. Hand that stuff over to him. What's the second one? Commemorate. Commemorate. Don't look back. Look back at that and say, God saved me. I am gone from there. I don't live there anymore. What's the third one? Celebrate. Celebrate. Yeah, celebrate. And the last of them? Communicate. Communicate. Yeah, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray, and then I'm going to invite Landon up just at his own scare and demise, because if we're going to try to celebrate, let's just, Landon, pick a song that challenges them to really celebrate. All right? And Micah, just God help us follow him. All right, pray with me, would you please? God, I thank you so much as we think about the gifts that we're going to be getting for Christmas, those things we wish we would get, those things we hope we would get, but thank you that the one thing we need, you offer us for free. Thank you that it is a gift, that we're never able to earn it. And God, I just pray right now, right, for those who, who are still debating on whether or not they really want to be yours, when they recognize that this Christmas, in any Christmas, any day, what, the only thing you really want is us. And I ask your forgiveness for those moments, God, when I'm battling, over, battling you over stupid things. And I just pray today, God, as you, by the death of your, uh, uh, that Jesus, as you are the Lamb, the, the Lamb the Father sent to die in my place, thank you for dying on that cross and raising again. And God, in that, make me a person, as a, as a Christian, as a father, as a husband, as a pastor, that has consecrated all aspects of his life to you, and continually commits to do so. And in that, God, may I live my life with that commemorative heart that recognizes that I no longer am a citizen of the land of bondage. And in that now, God, please cause my heart to celebrate, to celebrate you the way you intend. And in doing so, Lord, please now bring us together to communicate that information to a world that's so desperate in need for it, but doesn't even know that anyone is celebrating on the planet. And God, I just pray right now for if there be any or many who have yet to say yes to you, that today, by your Holy Spirit, just show them what is it you could possibly hold on to that would keep you from saying yes to this gift. So I'm praying a prayer and I ask you to listen. And at the end of it all, if you're willing to agree, I ask you to give a resounding amen. And what you're saying is, all right, let that prayer be mine. And here it is. God, I confess to you I'm a sinner. I know that my sin deserves to be punished and you as a righteous judge punish all sin. But in your great love for me, you sent Jesus to die on the cross for me so that all my sin could be murdered, killed. Actually, not murdered, but properly killed. And in that, Jesus, you died the death you didn't deserve 
that I did. And at dying at the cross, all of my guilt died with you. And then you rose again. And in rising again, you offer me new life. So I accept you, Jesus, as my Lord and my Savior, as my ransom and my Redeemer. Redeem me, God, I pray. And then make me that person you intend for me to be, the person that truly consecrates all of my life to you, that truly in that, Lord, commemorates this moment for the rest of my life, secure in my heart that I am no longer a prisoner. And in that, Lord, cause me to celebrate even now and communicate with this lost world and with those you've given me the honor of company that you are the God who causes the empty heart to celebrate and sets free the captive. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.